Hello everyone! I hope you are enjoying Julian's music that we are using as intros and outros. Today our guest is Sofia Vieira, representing Crea. And without any further ado, let's jump right into our conversation. Okay, so uh, hello Sofia. How are you doing this lovely afternoon slash evening for me in Finland? <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm pretty good. Although the weather here in the Netherlands is like always absolutely terrible, it's been raining nonstop for a week, so uh, we're trying to manage. <laughs> oh, the, the the greatest pleasure of cycling in like pouring rain and then getting to your job and being like, <laughs> yeah, it's not easy. Uh, do you, by the way, speak Dutch? No. Well, I did do a Dutch course about four years ago. So I actually have my A2 level in Dutch. But, well, once I finished the course, I decided that I wasn't going to continue having lessons because it was six hours a week and I just had to make some choices at the time. But unfortunately, I thought, okay, so now I have some basic skills. I can totally keep on proving um, just by, you know, practicing it with people and so on. But no, because everybody speaks English in this country. So there's actually, you know, no need to speak the language, especially because native speakers, they speak English so well that uh, as soon as they realize you're not a native speaker, they'll switch immediately to English. So yeah, then with time, I kind of just, yeah, forgot most of it, but I can understand a bit. So I manage all right. Six hours a week, that is intense. I did like a university mm -hmm. course before I left for my internship and that was like two hours a week. Now we're on the topic of languages. Let's just jump into introductions. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're from, what your projects are and like a little bit of a backstory? Uh, so I'm originally from Lisbon, Portugal, and I moved to the Netherlands when I was 17. Initially, I moved to The Hague, where I was studying for four years, doing my bachelor's in early music, actually. And for the last two years, I've been in Rotterdam. I'm pursuing a master's in arts, culture and society at uh, Erasmus University. Yeah, and right now, well, my main project is CREA, a foundation that I created together with a friend and colleague two years ago, roughly. And on and off, I help other artists producing some projects and yeah I'm just generally motivated to do stuff so I typically don't say no to people so yeah I, I end up doing a lot at the same time. That sounds hella familiar for um, context here. So Destructura the project that is hosting this podcast we have partnered up with Crea and we have applied for Erasmus Plus together now we're waiting to hear back and um, looking into the future doing some interesting things for this project and for whatever is to come but I uh, actually noticed your work like some time ago I think it was before the pandemic there was uh, the intake series of projects that I somewhere spotted and kind of followed a little bit. Maybe you can tell us about what it was about and how it worked. Yeah, of course. So actually, Intake was almost the reason CREA came to life. So in 2019, at the time, CREA still didn't exist. And, it, and Intake was mainly born out of 
my own initiative at the time. And so basically Intake is a festival, an interdisciplinary art festival. And the whole idea is to bring together artists from different dif- uh, disciplines, different backgrounds, and bring them together and exhibit their work outside of the typical big venues or, or galleries. And also the works that we try to showcase there are works that are really focused on the relationship between the artists and the audience, often with some sort of interactive component. Yeah, and uh, well, like I said, Intake existed before CREA, so I I must admit the first edition was kind of like, let's just start doing stuff and inviting people that we thought, you know, had something to, to offer. And it kind of was just continuously growing and uh, evolving. Do you have any favorite projects that you were showing during that series or anything that particularly like stood out to you or was somehow just special that you still remember to this day and are kind of eager to share with us? <laughs> well, I think the the, ver- the first edition of Intake was generally very marking for me. Uh, it was also the first time that I was organizing something. And so I think from actually... The whole process leading up to the opening where we were there every day doing the build-up with all the artists was very special. But artworks and or performances-wise, uh, yeah, definitely. I think a performance that really got stuck in my brain was done by a colleague of mine at the time. She She's a traverso player, so a flute player. She I find her a very special artist because she she's an historical flute player but at the same time she's part of this uh, studio uh, in the Netherlands called MAPA and they do a lot of work with uh, theater and movement and mime and all of this so she incorporates these two kind of sides of her practice into her performances and she at the time was also performing together with her partner a violin player. So for me, it was very interesting to see two acoustic instruments, which uh, are often associated with more high art forms. And then she was doing this really beautiful uh, movement piece as well, together with that, in a place where there wasn't even a stage. So there were no boundaries almost between her and, and her audience. Yeah, for me, that was very special. And I think lastly, the closing of the festival, we actually had a spontaneous jam session uh, between the artists and the audience. We had some percussion instruments lying around and people just naturally grabbed them and started jamming together for, I don't know, two hours or so. So I think that was really the perfect (laughs) ending to a festival which was all about, or which is all about, uh, you know, breaking the boundaries between audience and performers and questioning what kind of relationships can we create. That does sound really cool. I'm thinking of this one exhibition that also had performances in its program and had a lot of this kind of communication with audience parts, but it very often felt like it is still this artificial 
mm, look at me, I'm high art, you're just the audience. And there's um, this kind of actual conversation, and I don't mean verbal, but some form of conversation, be it through music or through what you're watching and reacting to, that felt like very much missing. And there was a, the whole performance bit of that exhibition was actually quite a big deal. And some things were super cool. There was this um, workshop done on the topic of textile, like natural ways of dealing with all sorts of textile, how you dye it, how you grow it, what can happen um, in different situations and how you can make patterns out of flowers and so on. And that was like a recurring workshop with the artist and the same group of people. And that I found had this element of we are breaking the barrier and it's really interacting with the audience. But often there is this kind of artificial element to it that makes it really hard to actually feel like you are part of it. But what you're describing with jamming like instruments out there and people are participating, that sounds like something really cool. Yeah, I think um, I, I can definitely relate to what you were just saying. And I think, I mean, I'm still trying to figure out why exactly some formats work and others don't. But I think a big part is, you know, it's not just the content, it's not just the programming itself. It's also, uh, or programming in the sense of what artworks or performances you decide to put on a lineup. It's also the, I feel, this whole environment around it that needs to be conducive in order for this kind of like really uh, interaction to happen. And things like, workshops or, or talks informal talks with artists or yeah i don't know discussion panels even the way you know the whole environment is set up i feel all of that kind of can uh facilitate or not that that interaction and it ends up being equally as important as what artists you do end up putting in the lineup yeah, I agree. It's a lot about the human element. I, th I think also a lot about intention, the way you were describing this being like the project out of which Crea then grew uh, and it being like a very mm, important and close to the heart almost project. I think that also makes it more personal for any other interaction that's going to happen between the artists and the people who are going to attend. I think that also plays a quite a quite quite a role in it. Um, but so intake was the first thing and now it's been a whole pandemic later. <laughs> what, what, what are your coming up plans or maybe hopes for the future and, um, projects you would like to pursue? Yeah. So intake that, that intake was nearly two years ago. And since then I feel that Crea has matured and and we are we have a better understanding about who we are and what kind of projects we want to do so we continued uh with intake we tried organizing a second edition actually three times and unfortunately we just had to cancel it for the third time in a row because of the regulations so that was really unfortunate but we have been keeping ourselves busy with other projects um so in the you know in the middle of the chaos of the pandemic after the second time we postponed intake uh we decided that we needed to change our approach and we organized a a series well several online series 
each kind of addressing different things to keep on doing stuff and putting stuff out there. So right now we have four online series. We have volumetric interviews, which is a collaboration with RGB The Dog, a community-based design studio. And that's a project that we, we are really happy about. And uh, it's a great collaboration. Soyun, Soyun Park, she's, she has an amazing team working with her. And uh, the project is really delving into the beneficial applications of technology. So she's interviewing uh, creatives uh, all across the Netherlands who are using technology in very innovative and, yeah, really trying to bring people together. And of course, she's really experimenting a lot with technology as well. So she's using uh, volumetric filmmaking techniques. And uh, each episode is really this kind of uh, fun dive into the boundaries of these filmmaking techniques. Then we have Altspace, which is interactive online performance series we actually just had the the first episode and uh, well basically we created together with with a developer an app and sorry an interface where basically you can be at home and interact in real time with the performances so and also you will in a way be interacting with all the other users because it's kind of all of the data from everybody combined is what then you know uh shapes the performance and then we two we have two other online series more oriented towards discussion and sharing of knowledge we have a workshop series from artists to artists mainly but of course also to to any other people who might be interested and then we have no resolution which is a discussion series we are currently undergoing some uh yeah restructuring of the project so we there won't for a while there won't be uh any other new episodes coming up but we already have two and we're very happy with the discussions that we had so that's also yeah that was also a very nice uh project so far yeah, and uh, we are not sure about what the future will hold for intake because the last, well, these three cancellations in a row were quite heavy for us. I feel that right now it's the time to kind of reflect on what kind of formats, presentation formats, make sense in this kind of very unstable environment that we're living in right now. That's a lot of things going on. <laughs> That's yes. <a> program. <laughs> <laughs> I can again relate. I have the I have this structure happening. I'm working for a startup. I'm doing an exhibition that I'm preparing for. I'm also have a couple of projects on the side. So, but it sounds like a lot of things going on. And you're also going to uni and uh, working on your degree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, yeah. it's it's a busy schedule. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, I won't lie. The last couple of months were really intense. But uh, I mean, I'm very happy doing this. You know, so. Uh, where, where there is love, there is, yeah, strength to continue, I guess. And I think this is a very interesting thing to dive into a bit more because when you, I'm not sure what your experience is with artists and culture managers. Um, I, I bet it's, it's something close to what I'm going to describe, but mm -hmm. a lot of the time people feel like I am just going to focus on this thing I'm doing. I'm going to paint or make music. And um, 
everything else will happen. <laughs> so I'm just uh, going to completely spend my time doing this, possibly apply a couple of places and then be selected a couple of places. And this is going to be what I will be doing. That's That's that. And then people are very frustrated that their careers are not taking off as quickly as they would like. And I think there's like a very interesting conversation around that, because on the one hand, it makes sense as an artist, you really want to go for what it is that you're interested in. You want to dive into your topic. You want to completely dedicate yourself to something that you're very interested in and you have uh, ideas for new work. And on the other hand, the reality is that if you are passive and if you just wait for things to come your way or to work out somehow naturally because you're just working and showing a little bit, it is not very, unfortunately, um, effective nowadays in the art world, especially if you want to do museums and so on. Um, people have to be super motivated, have 15,000 projects, probably a job on the side to pay for the bills, and then like go to all the gatherings and all the openings and then chill with people from museums and then have you know lunches that they can af cannot afford. And there's this whole big mess of um, trying to make it and having to be motivated. And it feels like so many... Mm, opportunities that I come across sort of make this gap even more pronounced. Like if you have a residency opportunity, right, um, you kind of hopefully apply, get there, they pay for everything, and then it's on to the next residency and like you have a pattern in front of you. Whereas it's not always going to be there. You're still going to have to invent something if you want to continue doing something new. Mm, yeah, and you being very motivated, driven, and having all these projects, what what do you think about this whole situation? Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, it, it's funny. Uh, we are talking about this because literally two days ago, I went to visit a... A church well it's it's now a a, a, space, a workshop space for a, for an artist collective and uh, we went to to visit that space because we're planning to organize there something and yeah I met the artists and we were having a beer afterwards and you know just getting to know each other talking about and immediately one of the topics that came to discussion was exactly this and and not only with them I've had several conversations over the last I don't know, year and a half, two years with artists who had recently graduated, I don't know, fine arts or something like that. And they were incredibly frustrated because they were telling me, yeah, so I supposedly spent four years learning how to be an artist just to find out that I actually don't know anything about how to be an artist in a practical sense, how to actually, you know, find funding, uh, <laughs> showcase my work. How does this actually work? I think it is a very tricky balance also for like institutions to find, like uh, uh, education institutions to find, like how much space should you put, should you give to, in the curriculum, I mean, how much space should you give to, 
you know, preparing people to actually deal with practicalities, also taking into account that often artists, especially when they're studying in, in their bachelor's or something, they just want to be focused on what they like doing and what their, you know, their, their art and improving their artistic practice. So how much space should you give to that and how much space should you give to them to explore and focus on their art, etc. It's a very hard balance to find. I do think at the same time that it is important, regardless of if people at the time fully understand the implications of it or not. Like it is very important to find space in 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 curriculums and whatnot. I don't know, maybe as workshops or short lectures or really creating also you know talks with people from museums and institutions we need to build bridges i I think and really kind of make sure that knowledge about how to access funding how to organize an exhibition how to present yourself all these things should be made available for for students i think it's it's just it's complete yeah it's crazy to think that you can just like spend four years or three years or whatnot just painting or just practicing your instrument and then you're supposed to find a job like that doesn't work like that and yeah again also what you mentioned about I feel like the the art world is particularly difficult to survive in also because of this element of networking that you mentioned you need to network it's it's it has been also documented in several studies about the art sector that it's one it's a huge component of how people actually find work it's who you know and so it, it's very hard to kind of you know surpass that yeah yeah and it's well, well okay let's start with um, the <laughs> practical point because I have, <laughs> have a lot of thoughts here um, but you are talking about where right, to get funding and also like a plug for destructura here this is exactly why we started doing this because especially what me coming from different backgrounds and being like i want to be an artist so i have a degree now so now what and then me also being motivated i started trying all sorts of different things applying getting rejected not understanding why no feedback going there going there trying to deal with certain people network with them but then ending up not quite being um not quite liking having to do this the way that it felt like it was necessary i'm um, it feels like often you have to be not yourself in order to um, have these mm, stereotypes of people sort of uh, be like, oh, we're interested in uh, your work. Let's show some. And I'm really, it just goes against my grain. I cannot just go there and pretend to be something. It doesn't really appeal to me at all. And I feel like there's also a big mm, need for innovation just within this whole system as a as a big system so the structure on the one hand yes we want to learn how these institutional links work how to benefit from networking how to be an artist after getting out of university on the one hand and on the other hand i think it is time especially after the pandemic, these all systems start to change. It's not really sustainable. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree with you. Um, also, I mean, there is, 
going back again to the to the idea of funding that you were mentioning there is a trend now and that that trend indicates that public funding is going to continue diminishing so i feel that we need to find as artists we need to find other sustainable ways of yeah existing as artists and not be completely dependent on on public funding i mean and on on the will of other people <laughs> unfortunately that's also very random who gets the funding and who doesn't and it's also so insufficient like there's so many frustrations about funding that i have right now fundraising for this and having fundraised fundraised for events and for certain even exhibitions uh for example why in the world is it frowned upon to have a sizable amount of the funding you get allocated to fees it is mostly people just putting in insane hours into making a project happen yet for the funder it's sort of okay to spend uh, on catering on venue rent on production but then when you say i would actually like to pay a living wage to the main uh, project coordinator they're like no 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 you're already paying your accountant and you're already paying for some design and you have legal all of this put together is more than 20 of the application we're not basically saying that we're not even going to consider it properly if the amount of money going to fees is over 20% of the total. And I find that completely insane. Yeah, for sure. I mean, to be honest, on this on this particular point, I feel, well, I only have experience or I mainly have experience with funding in the Netherlands. And I feel like the Netherlands in the last, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was in 2017, made some important steps in that direction now there's basically they created this tool that has some sort of like establishes how much money an artist should get for the work he or she puts in so it's kind of like varies according to if it's a new work if it's how big it is for how many days it will be in a, uh, on exhibition all of these kind of things And then it tries to establish, yeah, an amount, a corresponding amount to that, that kind of is fair. So the Netherlands, I feel it's it's making some important steps on that direction. And most, well, all pu all public funds right now, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, require you to follow that that tool. And most private funds are now also starting to to use it. So there is a little bit more control uh, on on fees for artists since a couple of years ago. There is, okay, that is a, um, at least um, a bit of a security net, thinking that, okay, we, have, we can get something reasonable. On the other hand, there's also like all of the bureaucracy, all of the calculating. So what is fair? What is like it? Um, having done a few applications, it's for various reasons, like the, the amount of information that they want is not necessarily representative of what the project is about and okay, that's a whole different discussion let's just leave my frustration out of it <laughs> uh, for alternative ways of funding uh well for let me just briefly tell you about my exhibition that i did that i have like the, the, the more or less correct one up to date that i have it was a research thing that started in 2018 like in italy then i took it to armenia for a big youth event And then eventually there was a series of performances and an exhibition in a gallery in Estonia, actually two galleries ended up 
one ended up being like an open studio for a month and the other just an exhibition. And the whole thing put together, I think, cost me somewhere around more than 5,000 euros. I got 100 euros of artist fee from the gallery because it's like a, it's the gallery is owned by the artist union. So it's basically a privilege to be accepted there. It's the way it's seen. And I got 500 something from the state. You can apply as an artist for an exhibition to get some funding. And the rest, I was, uh, I did a crowdfunding campaign through a French friend of mine because none of the crowdfunding platforms work in Estonia. Let's please change that. <laughs> then I just, I did lots of jobs. I did lots of jobs on the side, translating, doing design commissions, doing all sorts of things that take a lot of time. And it was like, two, three full-time jobs trying to fundraise and fund this exhibition on the one hand and on the other hand, actually working on the exhibition um, for two months there. I was, I think I like, except for the, for two days of a complete migraine, I worked at least eight hours absolutely every day. Crowdfunding seems to become more and more popular in the culture center. They're now even teaching it at universities as an alternative way of looking for financing what do you what how do you feel about crowdfunding for the arts well i did crowdfunding for the first for the first edition of of intake and it was at the time a big it was a big help and and, and quite a big chunk of our budget ever since i have stopped using it i think for two reasons one because i feel it's very unreliable and the second one it's it, for me, it feels a little bit morally wrong. Uh, how so? I feel it shouldn't, or or it's it's morally wrong. It's maybe a strong way to put it. What I mean is, artists shouldn't have to rely on crowdfunding. I feel to be able to make their projects come to life. I mean, you know, it it's different doing crowdfunding from somebody paying a ticket and and entering an exhibition. I feel. And this idea of individuals having to kind of like support the living of, of one person or, or their wage, I'm not very easy with this idea. And I feel by kind of, yeah, using crowd, uh, crowdfunding, I've done it myself. So it's not like I'm condemning anyone, but I don't necessarily want to keep feeding this system. You know, I feel that there should be more permanent, sustainable solutions. We should find other better solutions for this and not just keep using this because we don't have anything better. And I feel there are better ways. I feel like, I don't know, sponsorship, depending on which country you're at, because not all countries have the same kind of historical yeah, development when it comes to patronage and these kind of things. But I think sponsorships could be a better solution than crowdfunding although they're similar i feel that they're not exactly the same and yeah again depending on the country i feel like public and private funding there's a lot of at the same time there's still a lot of opportunities there and finally i feel like we shouldn't be i feel like sometimes when artists are doing organizing like a budget for a project 
they tend to they tend to put very low numbers uh, on the budget for themselves. And at least from experience, what I have come to understand is that actually when a selection like when a jury looks at your proposal and they see a very low number for the artists, they don't really take you seriously. And the projects that I've had more for at least like in the last in the last year or so, I would say the projects uh, which were more more successful when it comes to funding were those that we really went for it and we were like, you know, this is what we deserve. This is what we're going to put on the budget. So I think learning how to also like value or 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 not being afraid to to really ask for the for the numbers for the right numbers is also plays a big part on on how then people perceive you and yeah yeah that's it's a, again a, a big conundrum obviously you would like to ask for proper living money on the one hand and i'm sure some funding institutions do see it as a prerequisite to have adequate numbers there and on the other hand there's a situation i described before where you just literally are gonna, gonna, gonna be even considered if it's above the threshold that they see fit but on the topic of like alternative funding and crowdfunding and public funding what i've been thinking recently is you know with corona passes not everybody has access to culture now so If you think about it, people who do pay tax that goes towards supporting theaters, um, galleries, art centers, at least to an extent, depending obviously if it's a private one or a state one, but a huge portion of them do benefit from state funding. We're actually cutting people off from having access to those things that they have paid for because they are they don't have a Corona pass, and I think this is um, also being somewhat exploited by the uh, rightist sector of our political actors and everything related to that saying that here first of all you make this really funny contemporary art that we don't understand and don't see value in and secondly you're also taking our taxpayer money and you're not even letting us benefit from it because you have these corona passes so like this there's a lot of tricks and a lot of complications around public funding that I fear just are never going to make it sustainable for artists to hope for. Um, but sponsorships are an interesting one. This is also something I'm very eager to explore more and we're trying to do it right now. Because I did European Youth Parliament events and we were getting sponsorships from like, startups, consulting companies. And like the European Youth Parliament has lots of partnerships with With the private sector and for the arts i kind of am seeing way less of it on a certain level like if you go super high up sure samsung is teaming up with big artists but if you go like on a, like a couple of level, levels lower i don't think people are even considering it as something they could look into for an exhibition like say some somebody's doing something on global warming related climate change something natural and they wouldn't really think of approaching um, renewable energy companies, for example, to say, here's my exhibition. Maybe we could team up. I could, we could invite you as a speaker or something. So like, there's a huge lack of perception of possibility there. 
Do you think we can somehow combat that and somehow try and make it work better? I think, well, when it comes to sponsorship, like I said before, it also really depends on where you're living at or where you want to organize something. For example, in the United States, 99% of their funding is private. That includes a lot of sponsorships in there, of course. So I feel there people are a little bit more kind of programmed just because historically that's how the, the country, the funding system of the country has developed when it comes to, to arts and culture. People are a little bit more programmed to search for that. I think here in Europe, we have always relied much more on public funding. So people are just not even kind of like aware of that. But I do think that there are possibilities there. Of course, it's not it's not like we have, you know, <laughs> a lot of multimillionaires lying around or a lot of like super rich companies lying around. But I oh, do yeah, think we it's... do, we do, but they don't want to have anything to yeah. do with us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it 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 takes. Uh, I think the system also needs to kind of, yeah, stimulate, kind of push these people that do have the money to want to support us. So I don't know, tax benefits or or something like that could potentially work. But I think also it we should teach the artists or or yeah, not teach but kind of open their eyes to the possibility that we can maybe knock on some doors and. Not all models of partnership need to necessarily like involve money uh, or sponsorships or need to necessarily involve money. Like there's sometimes are other benefits that can come from it that can really make a difference for, for a project. Yeah, I also think that there's a lot of opportunities to be explored like for our partnerships in the this is again not art related, but like um event organizing related. <laughs> funny example for one event I organized I really wanted this fancy hummus that they make in Estonia <laughs> like uh, beetroot something something and then you have sun-dried tomatoes something something and I was like we never it's expensive we're never gonna have the money to have this kind of thing but what if we approach them as a sponsor like with this fancy not no fancy but like this useful cool interesting uh socially engaged event maybe maybe there is something there and we got some hummus and it was delicious <laughs> oh i'm very happy for you that's great <laughs> so yeah all you un young artists out there if you want some snacks for your uh exhibitions and that's like for sure this is an, a fun way to get to know the um culinary uh, industry in your region but talking about the system as well, because we were talking about some systematic issues when it comes to funding, because funding is the big elephant in every art room. But what would be another thing that you need, you think needs systematic change in Europe mainly because that's where we're based right now? I think for me, yeah, education, art education for me. Oh. Yeah. I'm I'm not a performer anymore. I studied music ever since, I, or I studied music ever since I was five. And when I came to the Netherlands, I came to pursue a bachelor in early music at the Royal Conservatoire. And well, early music for those who don't know, it's a very niche kind of like department of the classical 
classical music world. And basically what it is, it's a historically formed performance of music composed until the 19th century. It's like a mouthful, but uh, yeah, I think that's the best way to, to kind of describe what we do. Anyhow, like initially I was very attracted. So I made a, a, a switch right from the classical music world to the early music world. And for a very long time, I didn't really know what attracted me to the early music movement specifically. And years, years later now, I, I've come to understand that one of the big things that really got me into it was actually how much freedom and how much against kind of like the big canon uh, that is taught in the classical department, the, the big canon of art that is taught in the classical department. They, they really like they go against that they're not they're very much about asking questions and questioning everything and they're very much about egalitarian modes of disseminating knowledge and i think for me this is one of the biggest problems when it comes to arts education is that it's incredibly hierarchized and there is this very old kind of structure put in place that just doesn't fit the modes of art production that we have right now. I mean, this is a big thing, but like, for example, we live in a highly connected society, right? We are, everybody's kind of like specialized in one little thing and that's how production happens. Certain people take care of one thing, another person takes care of that and all together as a, as a team between brackets, we create something. And I feel like in the arts world, there's still very much this idea of the artist as like, the individual, this kind of like romantic notion of the isolated artist somewhere hidden in the middle of the mountains, kind of producing and just doing his own thing. And I feel this is a big problem because I feel it doesn't reflect the world that we live in right now. We need to kind of reach out and, and, and be able to work as a team. And I feel they don't teach you that in schools. And I think, again, this is then relates to this problem of how to yeah, survive as an artist after you graduate. Because if you're just like isolated and doing your own thing and you don't share your struggles, you don't share your successes as well, then we don't really move forward. Like I feel like if, if we would share more, we could all rise up more as a group of people. So yeah, I think arts education is still not and of course when we started talking in the beginning uh of of this conversation about the curriculums it's there i feel that they don't really reflect the the reality right now totally agree and i think it is a very common frustration a lot of young professionals in the culture and arts field that i talk to have this sort of criticism towards the education system like you're you're not really looking to what reality is right now the arts are kind of lagging behind in many places obviously you can't speak for every education institution lots of european institutions especially top ranking ones have mentorship programs for example you leave uni and then for the following two years you have a uni appointed mentor that helps you understand the whole thing but this is an exception rather than the rule but I think there's this one element to what you were saying that doesn't only apply to education, and I still very much agree with, and I think is important to start changing. It's talking about 
what is not working instead of hushing it up or just doing it in kitchens and cafes. A lot of these things that we are expressing to our artist friends or to our culture manager, curator friends, people are not really willing to openly reproach to the industry because everybody is like, mm, I better stay on good terms. And if I say something critical, it's not really going to fly and it's going to be probably a nuisance for my future career. Yet it's prevalent. Everyone's talking about it. I think we need to get more used to the fact that it's important to bring it up as a systemic issue and say, hey, this is what I think. What I think is important and I count and let's do something about it. It's not easy. It's a whole um, <laughs> education cycle on its own. Uh, one example that I can think of, somebody telling me that they worked in this institution and they, after the end of their sort of stay there or their work there, they came to their bosses with, here, I think you're a brilliant institution. I think you're doing a great thing. However, some things are kind of a little bit um, too set in their ways, somewhat old-fashioned. And here are my suggestions to what could be done better to reach full potential. I think these things would be great for improving your work or like our work since you're then on the team still. And the response was something like, I would take you seriously if you weren't that junior. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the people who actually have power in this kind of situations, like the, the individuals who actually have power in this kind of situations are the individuals who are working with bigger institutions already. And those, although, I mean, change needs to come from everywhere in all places and pressure everybody needs to exert pressure in order for this for these kind of things to change i feel those are really like key 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 places where change can can be enacted or not and i feel those people when they reach those positions they almost they they don't want to do it because it's like we made it you know there's almost like this sense of like we made it, so if we deserve to make it here, and they almost want to, there's a little bit of this want of like, they want to keep that division between those who make it and those who don't. And again, this this goes back to this idea of like, everybody's very turned to to themselves and to their individualistic needs. And I think it's this fact that you now described or this state of affairs is mainly to blame on the systems because these uh, people who are now in uh, high positions, there's not really that much to reproach them because they really put a lot of work into making it. For them, they played by those rules that the system wants them to comply with and they uh, went through a lot of competitive situations, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of stress, a lot of pr probably degrading behavior from people who were then at the top. And now they're like, okay, we made it, we are here. And now you're telling us everything that we have been doing so far is wrong and you don't like it. Well, go screw yourselves. We don't, <laughs> we're not going to take it. Yeah, it's a vicious circle and it's very hard to, to break it. Yeah. But hopefully now uh, I'm slowly going to start wrapping up our podcast for the day with some hopeful uh, vibes. 
hopefully now with the pandemic and with like some tangible shifts happening, maybe it's just uh, us being optimistic, but it does feel like there are a lot of, especially young people who are not willing to take what the system is offering and not only in the arts. Also the startup I work with, the next gen project in Finland, and it's kind of based around this idea that um, a lot of corporations still adopt this leadership style that is not usable for the new generation. So people who leave universities um, have super great degrees, a lot of potential. They opt for doing their own startups, starting their own businesses instead of going to big employers. And it's becoming more and more of an issue. People just don't want to subscribe to this kind of leadership and those old systems and they want to go out and do something new. So looking at this overall um, change in moods, hopefully, hopefully the <laughs> art world will also fit in somewhere. Yeah, I am hopeful. I feel like the pandemic was this kind of period that people could, I don't know, like even the art that I'm seeing now in, in, in the few exhibitions and performances that I've been to after uh, when the theater started opening and such is generally so powerful and also stylistically I'm starting to see really ruptures with what came before and I think the next couple of years are going to be very interesting to see what comes out of this and also of course like this shift online has also I think it's going to it's going to have big repercussions for the arts and culture sector. I've been talking with some art professionals who are relatively established, well, quite established by now recently and they were really talking about delving into NFTs and all these kind of things to kind of create their own little sustainable market basically so that they can, you know, exist without having to rely on funding and whatnot so i feel like the next couple of years are going to be very interesting in the arts and culture sector and at the same time i feel that the need for arts and culture has never been greater you know people are have come to understand that going to a concert going to an exhibition going to a event is actually super important to them and they miss it desperately so i think it's we have i think both from consumption and production sides there's a lot of new interesting things and shifts happening right now yeah i'm happy to be like part of the, those shifts it's agreed it's gonna be super interesting but now let's slowly well now rapidly actually <laughs> <laughs> uh, wrap up this episode if you have something you would like to share as advice, guidance, or not to do, or something, maybe just like one story that particularly um, shook you when you were part of it or heard about it. Something like a snippet for any young art professional, artist, or uh, choreographer or dancer or mm -hmm. opera singer, whoever, um, <laughs> what would it be? Um, well, I think I tend to be, I tend to be very kind of 
I need to make it on my own, you know, like I have this approach to two things generally. So I tend to not ask for help. I tend to not reach out to people. Despite of everything that I've said so far in the conversation, this actually happens to me quite a lot. But the most beautiful uh, moments that I've had in the last two years working as director of Korea were when I saw people just offering their help and their advice, people who have been in the sector for, for many, many years and just sharing information, valuable information and knowledge and just sharing experience, you know, just like telling me how they have handled things in the past, which I guess it's a little bit of what I'm doing now. So I think that's really the, the most important takeaway that I have is just don't be afraid to kind of like verbalize and reach out uh, because I'm pretty sure that most people go through the same things. Most people go through the same doubts and same problems. So I think sharing is, yeah, the most sharing knowledge, sharing experience is the most important thing. That is brilliant. And I think highly useful. So people make note of that. And now I'm going to say a huge thank you to Sophia for this very interesting and practical conversation that we've had. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. Yeah, it was actually very, very fun. For any, I hope, hope the listeners will also catch um, up on that. But with this, I'm going to say have a lovely day, afternoon, evening, night, whatever it happens to be where you are. And we're going to wrap up with a little bit of music from Julian Hamilton, as it is now a bit of a custom until we run out of melodies. Bye. Mm -hmm.